0: You can be turning to Second Corinthians chapter 6, where we'll be this morning. Some of you may have realized that that hymn we just sang, uh, we updated, we changed some of the words because we're evil liberal people. But what did I do? I turned it into a communal voice as opposed to an individual voice. And one of the things that I, I, I guess I feel like I've been unpacking as I think about this topic of Christian community, which is what our series is on, is it seems the Bible prefers to think of all of us together than just individuals. That, I believe it was actually John Wesley who said that, uh, Christianity is innately a social religion, if you want to view it that way, and, and we live in this American Culture handed that down to us from great preachers like Billy Graham and Billy Sunday and others that have stressed the personal testimony, the personal response to salvation and how your faith is personal and i I don't know I'm beginning to think maybe it's we've made it too personal i'm not saying you can't have a personal faith, and I 'm not saying the Lord never speaks to you individually, but I don't know if it's a hundred percent personal. <laughs> we need to do church together. There's a very well-known passage, which is actually where the title of my sermon comes from, as the King James words it, come out from among them and be ye separate. Uh, This sort of thinking, this sort of theology has been festering in my own thinking for many years now of the community of Christ being separate. And uh, around 2016 or so, I, I started studying uh, Amish theology and then furthermore, Anabaptist uh, theology. Uh, that's the broader group the, the Amish come from. And there is this idea, which I find to be undeniably biblical, revolving around the idea of two-kingdom thinking. There are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of this world, and then there's the kingdom of God. And you've no doubt heard me preach on that before. And I guess one of the big moments in my own preaching that I can think of is when a certain angle of this biblical truth hit me was in a series I preached on in Galatians 2.20. Another memorable passage from Paul where he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. And so there you go. There's an individual. I, me, me, me. I'm not saying it's not in the Bible. But in that series, and specifically examining the phrase, I no longer live, I touched then on this idea of there's the world, and then there's Jesus and his people and his kingdom. And as we examine that phrase in context of Galatians, Paul says some weird things perhaps even weird to the average cultural Christian in our day and age. He says things like, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Think about that. Especially if you live in America, which seems to be especially instant gratification. Find it on the smartphone world. Paul says, as a Christian, we crucify, we put to death the flesh with its passions and desires. And I'll be the first to admit that much of the time it feels like if I have a fleeting passion or a desire that sounds good, I'll do it. Probably without asking God about it first. I need to repent here. There there is no doubt the hard part of self-crucifixion, self-surrender, yielding to God, But then there is a good part, where at least for me, it's comforting and freeing and liberating. And it comes from where where Paul says in Galatians 6.14, he said, "As, As for the Lord Jesus Christ, it is through him the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's Paul saying, the world is dead to me. And this is liberating, for me at least, heartwarming. Now, do you ever hear that phrase, you're dead to me? That's usually given in a moment of strife between used-to-be loved ones. And what is being said there? Suppose a friend says to a friend becoming an ex-friend, you're dead to me. And he's saying, who you are no longer matters to me. What you do doesn't affect me one way or another. I won't be looking for you. I won't be fellowshipping with you. You might as well be a stranger I do not know living thousands of miles away whom I never met and never will meet. You are dead to me. You're non-existing. It's placing no value on him. It's not even acknowledging it. And Paul is saying in his identity as a Christian, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That is, the world is dead to me, is what Paul is saying. Before we get carried away looking at this, which we will return to near the end of our time together, I do invite you to stand in honor if you're able to in hearing the word of the Lord in 2 Corinthians 6:14 through 18. So please stand if you're able to. Paul writes, "Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness?" What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? For we are the sanctuary of the living God. As God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this subject together and we think about separation, and it really is a judgment of the world to say, you shouldn't be part of that. It's easy to get caught up in feeling like, am I being loving? Am I not doing what Jesus did when he sat with sinners? So there's some teaching that you need to do here. Some interpreting that we want to hear from you from because we want to follow your word, all of it. So we ask Lord Jesus, we ask Holy Spirit, trusting that you're present, that you who inspire the writing of these words are able to translate it for us and apply it to our hearts and minds. Help us to be yielded and obedient to the things you're telling us. Father, we love you and we thank you and we ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A sad, worldly intrusion, I believe, into cultural Christianity is the breakdown of the sacredness of community. I remember this growing up and then becoming a youth pastor. I hate to word it this way, but I don't know how else to to word it. But I was, quote, unquote, on staff at the Nazarene Church, and I would hear complaints of what happened to the Wednesday night Bible study. What happened to the Sunday evening service? And, and I guess I'm too liberal or too forgiving and gracious. Uh, bad qualities for a Christian, I know. But my, my first thought in judgment was usually not, well, we're all probably God-forsaken sinners who've put other priorities over studying the Word of God. We're all heathens now. I know plenty of Christians who, who may be very busy, but they're still very genuine devout, uh, forthright in their Christian walk. So I personally don't judge when it comes to the absence of such things. Now I know others who are much holier than me have taken upon the gavel and gown and I'm assuming they sought the Lord's approval in playing judge for him, but he hasn't bestowed that great honor on me yet. Righteous reasoning or not, it does show us a breakdown in community. It does show us, no matter how you want to color it, yes, apparently, a lack of commitment or investment or at least a lessening of appreciation of community. Sadly, in America, especially maybe the, the Western world at large, we've we've backed away from a sacredness had and enjoyed in the idea of community, uh, you know, I saw this in homes. I see this. I saw this growing up. Uh, there were all six of us at home, and there was meals at the table—morning, lunch, and evening. Uh, all, all at the table. TVs were off. Who had cell phones? Yes, I'm—at I'm, least I'm that old. <laughs> but there was conversation. There were meals at the table, and it was a physical, tangible way of saying you're important. Let's talk. Uh, I want to hear about your day, and I want to share a meal with you. But as siblings moved away, and as the youngest ones of my family, my brother and I, got older, and then we had jobs, it almost got to the point of make dinner yourself, we'll be in front of the TV. Or, or even if, if we were home. Even if we were all home, it's let's eat in front of the TV, and let the TV do the talking. And it's unspoken, and don't hear me wrong, it's likely, if not certainly unintended, but... Out of the unintentional draw away from the table, it says this, I'd rather hear the TV than come up with things to talk to you about. I'd rather make this meal about comfort, convenience, and self-indulgence than patience and spending time with you and offering someone else my attention, right? Like I said, it's uninspoken, and it's probably unintended. But just like stroke victims never intended to get a stroke from their diet and lack of exercise, They just wanted food and comfort. The same can happen when we don't intend to harm community, but we still seek selfish comforts. And we live in this culture that states it's more connected globally. This is a virtue. We have cell phones. We have instant talk with whoever we want, email, video chatting. But here's the thing. Suddenly people can befriend whoever they want to, at the expense of, and spending less time with whoever they don't want to who lives next door. And I can tell you, whenever you can have a friend on your own terms, it's more easy. If I can text my friend whenever I want to, and I can feel socially satisfied, even if I never see that friend, and then I tell myself, I never befriend my neighbor, whoever I see every day, because, well, I'm just I'm satisfied by my virtual friend. It's not as costly. I I found a friend more compatible to me. I don't need to stretch my relational muscles and befriend that guy who's a little hard to get along with whenever I got my friend on Facebook or my phone. And believe it or not, this doesn't help community. It introduces a counterfeit community. It's not the community that the Bible preaches, nor is it the community that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 6. When he says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers, he's talking about the sacredness once known and felt by most people who couldn't even imagine some of the superficial, surface-level situations that we call relationships and community today. When it comes to life at the table, who you pour your heart into and receive their heart from. And whenever you enter into business opportunities or long-term commitments, this is what Paul's talking about. And there's four movements in our texts that I see today. Arguments from the natural, arguments from the spiritual, our command, and then our identity. First, let's look at arguments from the natural. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? So here are the arguments, I believe, from the natural. It's an argument concerning deeds, motives, ruler, and allegiance. We should separate and we shouldn't yoke ourselves to unbelievers because what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Uh, Notice the, the yoking symbolism suggests, as one of my study notes say, the prohibition against being yoked together with unbelievers must be considered in situations where significant control over one's actions would be willingly yielded to an unbeliever through a voluntary partnership or association. It's about deeds, though. It doesn't take long for one to watch the news or look around in public and realize there is a difference of deeds and ethics between non-believers and believers. I was a rather goody-two-shoes as a kid. And I remember, I think back, and maybe I'd call it embarrassed or ashamed, I don't know, but but I remember I got cut up in a while with a little click at the school. There was a second and third grade combination class, and... Uh, I was in the second grade, and I had all these upperclassmen in the same room with me. And I wouldn't say Kamiya had gangs, but we had cliques. And some of these third graders accepted me into their clique. And one of the things, unspoken albeit definitely implied, that was required for running in this clique was swearing, (laughs) a foul mouth, unwholesome talk. And even as a kid raised in the church, something just didn't jive. (laughs) Something wasn't right. I knew it was wrong. If you get into working positions and there are definite differentiation of deeds, you know something's not connecting. How can one be yoked with or working with or doing life with people who break commandments while you are trying to live a life trying not to? What partnership is there? How about motives? Or what, or what fellowship does light have with darkness? The Christian and the Christian community has a motivation, a driving force. We as Christians should desire light, to do the will of the Father, to glorify Jesus and all we say and do, to want His will and purposes, to pray His kingdom come and will be done. What do non-Christians want? Most may not even know how to voice it. My guess is it's largely self-fulfillment. And if you or I start doing life in a serious way with those who are of darkness, they will be living to fulfill themselves, to pursue happiness at anyone's expense, including their own, to fulfill their passions and worldly lusts. When you and I enter into communion with people who are not on board with King Jesus, and persistently so, how can one community glorify God while parts of that community don't live to glorify Him? Motivations. How about who's the ruler? This is another line of separation. What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Belial meaning worthlessness or destruction, but many believe that Paul is just using another name for the devil here. Paul says elsewhere in places like Ephesians two two that there is a ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. And we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and by nature we were children under wrath, as the others were also. You are welcome to diminish it, or dismiss it, or ignore it, or be willfully ignorant. But it's all still true. There are spiritual rulers. Spiritual rulers right now operating, leading people. And the Bible makes it clear, whether servants of sin, Satan, and hell know it or not, if they're not following Christ, they're following the ruler of the power of the air right now. And Christ seeks to redeem humanity glorify God, restore creation, and Belial, or Satan, seeks to devour humanity, destroy creation, upend God's order, and consume life. And so Paul is making the point here, as non-American as it is, as hard and abrasive and judgmental and backwards and unpopular as it sounds, to try and stick a believer with a non-believer is really sticking a Christ worshiper with a Satan worshiper. And the way Satan will receive and accept worship is either wittingly or unwittingly. He doesn't care. So it's an argument from whose ruler. And lastly, it's an argument about allegiance. He says, or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And I can hear some might say, well, that's a pretty broad stroke. What if he fishes and I fish? (laughs) What if they're history buffs and I'm a history buff? What if they're a Republican and I'm a Republican? But it comes down to what Paul is putting this context in. Don't be yoked to people, business-wise, deep relationship-wise. Because ultimately, if you enter into a communal, doing-life-with type relationship with them, ultimately, what will a believer have in common with an unbeliever? For the true-hearted Christian, following Christ in Scriptures, A believer should be a self-denying, Christ-exalting, disciple-making, God-glorifying, righteousness-hungering, mission-pursuing follower of God. And that should occupy his or her time. And what would that person have in common with a self-indulging, Satan-admiring, evildoer-applauding, God-offending, passions-pursuing, lost person? They're heading in opposite directions. One humbly pursues God, the other blindly serves the devil. One's headed for darkness, the other's pursuing light. One seeks to be godly, the other unapologetically does evil. That is the argument from just natural observation. And Paul now moves to, to arguments from the spiritual. He's leading up to, to commanding separation from the world. But what are his spiritual arguments? And one might say, well, belief in whose ruler and... And their allegiance to that is already spiritual, but I believe it gets more spiritual here in verse 16. And what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? For we are the sanctuary of the living God, as God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Christianity in its simplest terms is a spiritual relationship to Christ. Meaning, you and I believe in Him, His spiritual truths, this spiritual transaction we know, profess, and believe that He died for me, He lives in you and me, and He lives in the community. We are the new temple. The Jerusalem temple where the ancient Jews worshiped at was demolished. Christ says, and the Bible says, that the only temple that God cares for, the only one He resides in, is in the covenant community. And so by virtue of that reality, and do any of you know the abomination of desolation? What that was in, in one of those books we Protestants shouldn't read in First Maccabees. It is, uh, they built an abomination of desolation upon the altar. And also if you look earlier in that chapter, there's evidence uh, that it was a pig slaughtered on the altar. And just how the idea of how offensive that is. That's what Paul seems to be getting here. We're talking about God's sanctuary. We invite him in. He's supposed to make us holy. Be holy as I am holy. Peter echoes God's command in his book. Peter says, Therefore, get your minds ready for action. That's skirt up your loins right there. Being self-disciplined and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. This applies individually. This applies communally. We're God's holy temple. For we are the sanctuary of the living God. As God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. And so to bring in non-believers is like bringing in a pig in the temple. God says, I will dwell among them and walk among them. The evangelist John envisions, envisions this on Patmos. He says in Revelation 1, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. Just a quick uh, news flash. Those lampstands are going to be the seven churches that John writes. Uh, and among the lampstands was one like the son of man dressed in a long robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. It's Jesus dwelling among his people, walking among them, being their God and they his people. So what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? Right? We we cannot invite those with different deeds, motives, those who have a different ruler, those who have different allegiance into our sacred community because they're idol worshippers. We're all worshiping something. I bring this up from time to time. Look up Isaiah 43, 7 and 21 on your own time, but we are made to worship God and glorify Him. And if we're not doing that, we're going to be worshiping and glorifying something else. The world will say, I'm not religious, but God will say, you're very religious. You have a God. The God might be yourself. It might be an abstract cause or vision of your own paradise, but you're still worshiping an idol. And so to say, you, non-believer, be yoked to me, is to invite the proverbial pig to slaughter on the altar in the temple. Well, they just think differently. It goes deeper than that. It's what Paul's been saying. So we might ask, is no one holy enough to be part of the sacred community? No, there's a difference between a repentant sinner who knows where salvation lies and an offensive sinner who rejects where salvation lies. So what is the command then? Because we might begin to think, how much association with non-believers is too much? When do we cross a line? What does this mean for seekers and befriending people and evangelizing? Well, let's look at the command in verse 17. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing and I will welcome you. Verses 16, 17, and 18 are quotations from the Old Testament. Leviticus 26.12, Isaiah 52.11, that's this statement here, and then 2 Samuel 7.14. Paul is likely quoting the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. We know that because the Septuagint sounds most like what Paul is saying, whereas the Bible's usually what we all have, our Old Testament's translated directly from the Hebrew. And there's some subtle differences. And Isaiah 52 is that passage where we hear the familiar verse, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And it's the passage where God through Isaiah is encouraging the Israelites who were taken into captivity by Babylon, that they will return, they will come back from exile, they will come back to Israel, to Jerusalem and to return to Jerusalem, and more than returning to the homeland, they'll be returning to their righteousness before God. Hence, God says in Isaiah 52:11, this comes from a Septuagint translation, "Depart, depart." Come out from there and touch no unclean thing. Come out from the middle of her, her being Babylon. Be separate, you who carry the vessels of the Lord, because you will not come out with trouble or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the one who gathers you is the God of Israel. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. So what is this not saying? This is not an argument for sectarianism. He reads the Bible slightly different than I do, so let's just separate. No, that's not what we're getting at. They play too many worldly-sounding songs. Did you hear that one? Above your sound? No. (laughs) (laughs) The passage is talking about not yoking with worldly people. We're talking about, as already argued, people whose deeds, motives, their ruler, their allegiance, shows that they're downright non-believing, come out from them. The community, the people you and I yoke with, is supposed to be the temple of God. That's who we do life with. That's our table. Now, it's interesting to me, because I just made mention that Paul is pulling from Isaiah's prophecy to those in exile in Babylon. And I remember another passage to the exiles in Babylon, But that's not on separation from the Babylonians. No, rather in exile, while in Babylon, we read God tell them through Jeremiah. Sorry, sectarianism. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it has prosperity, you will prosper. And I bring this up because I wonder if some hear all of this exclusivity, all of this separation and don't yoke with them and be 100% as mean and nasty and hateful and spiteful. Which I understand. Don't eat at my table sort of thinking might bring that up. But the community of Christ, the sanctuary of the Lord, is found to be with believers. But as for how the community of Christ treats the Babylon around us, the exile we we find ourselves in, it's like this. Live as a, a separate community within the greater Babylon, but plant gardens, grow families within the confinements of the separate community, but still within the site of the broader community, as if you were set as a city on a hill, as if I selected that passage for John to read for some reason. Furthermore, don't just live or take up space, but seek the welfare of that city. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. So obviously, we're nice, loving, prayerful, supportive of the welfare of the broader surroundings. But as for our community and our people, Those who love and serve the Lord. There needs to be a marked difference. We don't share the same values. We don't always necessarily have the same concerns. We're essentially not the same people. We don't have the same culture. We don't have the same desires, ends and pursuits and goals all the time. What it comes down to is an identity difference. There is a reason... That Paul gives for this separation found in verse 18. God is talking and he says, I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Do you hear the love? Do you hear the familial family tone in that? It's like this. When I was a son growing up, a Davis boy, I knew a few things, generally speaking. We're Christians. We go to church on Sundays. We knew and trusted the Bible. There were a few house rules, one of them being I shouldn't use unwholesome talk. Uh, I shouldn't lie. I shouldn't abuse anyone in the house. I should obey and do the chores when asked. We, we're we all going to eat at the table. And so what wouldn't happen and what wouldn't fly is if I decided to pick up swearing around the Davis house to use the excuse, well, over at my friend's house, there's no ban. So I'm going to know what, what would be said. Well, you're a Davis boy, and you're in the Davis house. And furthermore, my parents would have the audacity to say, and as a Davis boy, I would rather you not use unwholesome talk anywhere, whether you're in the house or with us or out and about. Why? Because it's my identity that they have chosen for me, that they were raising me in, right? It makes sense. It's fair. Similarly, my siblings and I knew a lot of people growing up. Sometimes we brought friends home that almost became part of the the family, and coincidentally, those friends often went to church. Maybe not our immediate church, but still a church. Other times, though, I knew that there were times when someone unchurched came through me or one of my siblings, and I would like to think we weren't judgmental, but they made it hard sometimes. And there was too much of a gap. More than different interests, we had different pursuits, More than different ways of looking at things, we just had different values. And I never knew myself or my parents to say they're never allowed to come over again. But I do know that less visitation seemed to happen because I think they felt it too. Like, what do I have in common with these people? Similarly, God is saying, this community I've made, I've come, I've lived, I, I died for, I rose again for, they're my sons and daughters. My sons and daughters. And I will have them Reflect me, no one else. So we're a community cultivating and reflecting Him. And just how Kent and Darlene Davis would not allow swearing or any other bad sinful moral habit into the house, or when those strangers who felt continually estranged came to the house less than us, you and I know that God has good reasons for what He is exclusive about. His purpose in our being holy and set apart and separate you know i began with this growing understanding i've had likely started around 2016 when i preached that series on galatians 220 and 2018 is when i preached that i should say and then really since about 2020 it's never been easier for me to accept (laughs) this This separation of kingdoms and the fact that my loyalty and focus and identity is found in and invested in in who God is making his people to be. And as for the world, it's dead to me. Is this true for you, friends? How much of the world is influencing you? Where are your values taken? Where do you seek approval? Where do you seek comfort and convenience? And if the world is dead to me, Christian if it has been crucified to me an eye to the world, and if we're saying, you don't affect me, world, and what happens in you does not have sway, power, or control over me in any way, well, what this means is that your ruler is Christ, your allegiance is to him, your identity is God's son, God's daughter. That's your identity. That's your passion, purpose, identity, hope. And so if you want to hear it this way, God is really selfish when it comes to his community. Who are my mother and my brothers? Jesus asks. And looking about those who were sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. You hear that? In this passage in Mark 3, Jesus overlooks his blood family. And particularly in context we heard that when his family heard his preaching, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. And so knowing why they were there to get him at that time, Christ knew in that moment they didn't share the same deeds, motives. They didn't have the same allegiance. They didn't acknowledge Christ as who he is. They eventually did. But until then, Christ asked, who are my brothers, my sister, my mother? Now, you could say, ouch how offensive, that's your own family. But at the same time, we could marvel, wow, what a connection God makes between the family of Christ. I don't know how you take this. Here's what it's done for me. And like anything in my faith, I'm unwilling to say I'm there as far as implementing and applying this truth to my spiritual condition. I'm still in need of separating. But what this has done for me is this, and it may hurt or make some feel slightly sad, but here's what it's done. I've grown not ignorant, rather careless of a lot of the things in our world. Careless as in almost indifferent. Tragedies that talking heads want me to mourn over. Drama that newscasters want me to feast on. Sinister episodes that fear want me to worry over. I've grown careless. Indifferent. I have little emotional reaction to it. This is because... I won't say I've grown, but I'm growing very concerned, intensely invested, emotionally attuned, not to our world, but to, to, to Christian, to our nation, to our kingdom of God. I went in on that community. I went deeper into that identity. I expect sin to take place in a fallen world. It's going to happen. But I'm more interested in my brothers and sisters, to use the words of Jesus, Because I expect redemption and hope to happen for the rest of the world in this community. Does that make sense? Christ said that His people would be a blessing to the nations. And I still believe it is. It's inside out, it's upside down, but it fits right in line with the rest of the Bible's way of thinking that the hope of the world will only be found in the community of Christ. What did Jesus say to the Samaritan woman? Salvation is from the Jews. Well, that's kind of racist. But now the Jews are God's chosen people. I still believe that salvation is still from his chosen people. Why don't we go ahead and pray. Father, what you're doing right here, right now, amongst these people, is the only thing that seems to matter. Not because this congregation knows so great, but I'm talking about your spiritual church worldwide, where people meet in your name. That's the place where hope is going to change this world. It's not in government offices or in synods and among parliaments. and, But Father, it's what we do. It's day-to-day as the community of Christ. And it can seem a little bit judgmental whenever you lay out the sort of people that we should be in community with. But help us to see even our community as a witness to the rest of the world for people to say, I want in on that. That's real. They love each other. They know who they're following. They reflect someone that I want to reflect. So help us, Father, to live this out day in and day out. Help us to know what you want us to do and how you want us to be. Help us to be growing this direction, to be focused on your kingdom and your nation. And Father, whenever you call any of us to serve the greater nation, even politically, help us to be mindful and discerning and to know how you want us to serve in that capacity and help us to go with the blessing of the community and the prayers of the community. Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.